Chapter Twenty Seven of France and England in North America, Part Three: La Salle, Discovery of the Great West. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. France and England in North America, Part Three: La Salle, Discovery of the Great West, by Francis Parkman Jr. Chapter Twenty Seven, Sixteen Eighty Seven, Assassination of La Salle. The travelers were crossing a marshy prairie towards a distant belt of woods that followed the course of a little river. They led with them their five horses laden with their scanty baggage, and with what was of no less importance their stock of presents for Indians. Some wore the remains of the clothing they had worn from France, eked out with deerskins, dressed in the Indian manner, and some had coats of old sailcloth. Here was La Salle, in whom one would have known at a glance the chief of the party, and the priest Cavalier, who seems to have shared not one of the high traits of his younger brother. Here, too, were their nephews, Moringay, and the boy Cavalier, now about seventeen years old. The trusty soldier Joutel, and the friar Anastasie Douay. Duot followed, a man of respectable birth and education, and Lioteau, the surgeon of the party. At home they might perhaps have lived and died with a fair repute, but the wilderness is a rude touchstone, which often reveals traits that would have lain buried and unsuspected in civilized life. The German, Heinz, the ex-buccaneer, was also of the number, he had probably sailed with an English crew, for he was sometimes known as Gem Anglais, or English Gem. The Sieur de Marie, Tessier, a pilot, L'Archevêque, a servant of Duot, and others, to the number in all of seventeen, made up the party, to which is to be added Nika, La Salle's Shawano hunter who, as well as another Indian, had twice crossed the ocean with him, and still followed his fortunes with an admiring though undemonstrative fidelity. They passed the prairie and neared the forest. Here they saw buffalo, and the hunters approached and killed several of them. Then they traversed the woods, found and forded the shallow and rushy stream, and pushed through the forest beyond, till they again reached the open prairie, Heavy clouds gathered over them, and it rained all night, but they sheltered themselves under the fresh hides of the buffalo they had killed. It is impossible, as it would be needless, to follow the detail of their daily march. It was such an one, though with unwanted hardship, as is familiar to the memory of many a prairie traveller of our own time. They suffered greatly from the want of shoes, and found for a while no better substitute than a casing of raw buffalo hide, which they were forced to keep always wet, as when dry it hardened about the foot like iron. At length they bought dressed deerskin from the Indians, of which they made tolerable moccasins. The rivers, streams, and gullies filled with water were without number, and to cross them they made a boat of bull hide, like the bull boat still used on the upper Missouri. This did good service, as, with the help of their horses, they could carry it with them. 
Two or three men could cross in it at once, and the horses swam after them like dogs. Sometimes they traversed the sunny prairie, sometimes dived into the dark recesses of the forest, where the buffalo, descending daily from their pastures in long files to drink at the river, often made a broad and easy path for the travellers. When foul weather arrested them, they built huts of bark and long meadow-grass, and safely sheltered lounged away the day, while their horses picketed nearby stood steaming in the rain. At night they usually set a rude stockade about their camp, and here, by the grassy border of a brook, or at the edge of a grove where a spring bubbled up through the sands, they lay asleep around the embers of their fire, while the man on guard listened to the deep breathing of the slumbering horses and the howling of the wolves that saluted the rising moon as it flooded the waste of prairie with pale mystic radiance. They met Indians almost daily, sometimes a band of hunters, mounted or on foot, chasing buffalo on the plains, sometimes a party of fishermen, sometimes a winter camp on the slope of a hill or under the sheltering border of a forest. They held intercourse with them in the distance by signs. Often they disarmed their distrust and attracted them into their camp, and often they visited them in their lodges, where, seated on buffalo robes, they smoked with their entertainers, passing the pipe from hand to hand, after the custom still in use among the prairie tribes. Cavalier says that they once saw a band of a hundred and fifty mounted Indians attacking a herd of buffalo with lances pointed with sharpened bone. The old priest was delighted with the sport, which he pronounces the most diverting thing in the world. On another occasion, when the party were encamped near the village of a tribe which Cavalier calls Sassari, he saw them catch an alligator about twelve feet long, which they proceeded to torture as if he were a human enemy, first putting out his eyes, and then leading him to the neighboring prairie, where, having confined him by a number of stakes, they spent the entire day in tormenting him. Holding a northerly course, the travelers crossed the Brazos and reached the waters of the Trinity. The weather was unfavorable, and on one occasion they encamped in the rain during four or five days together. It was not in harmonious company. La Salle's cold and haughty reserve had returned, at least for those of his followers to whom he was not partial. Duart and the surgeon Liotteau, both of whom were men of some property, had a large pecuniary stake in the enterprise, and were disappointed and incensed at its ruinous result. They had a quarrel with young Moringay, whose hot and hasty temper was as little fitted to conciliate as was the harsh reserve of his uncle. Already at Fort St. Louis, Duart had intrigued among the men, and the mild admonition of Joutel had not, it seems, sufficed to divert him from his sinister purposes. Lioteau, it is said, had secretly sworn vengeance against La Salle, whom he charged with having caused the death of his brother, or, as some will have it, his nephew. On one of the former journeys, this young man's strength had failed, and La Salle, having ordered him to return to the fort, he had been killed by Indians on the way. 
the party moved again as the weather improved and on the fifteenth of march encamped within a few miles of a spot which la salle had passed on his preceding journey and where he had left a quantity of indian corn and beans in cash that is to say hidden in the ground or in a hollow tree as provisions were falling short he sent a party from the camp to find it these men were duot liotot heinz the buccaneer tessier l'archeveque nica the hunter and la salle's sergeant saget they opened the cache and found the contents spoiled but as they returned from their bootless errand they saw a buffalo and nica shot two of them they now encamped on the spot and sent the servant to inform la salle in order that he might send horses to bring in the meat accordingly on the next day he directed moringay and de marle with the necessary horses to go with saget to the hunter's camp when they arrived they found that duot and his companions had already cut up the meat and laid it upon scaffolds for smoking though it was not yet so dry as it seems this process required duot and the others had also put by for themselves the marrow-bones and certain portions of the meat to which by woodland custom they had a perfect right moringay whose rashness and violence had once before caused a fatal catastrophe fell into a most unreasonable fit of rage berated and menaced duot and his party and ended by seizing upon the whole of the meat including the reserved portions this added fuel to the fire of duot's old grudge against moringay and his uncle there is reason to think that he had harbored deadly designs the execution of which was only hastened by the present outbreak the surgeon also bore hatred against moringay whom he had nursed with constant attention when wounded by an indian arrow and who had since repaid him with abuse these two now took counsel apart from heinz tessier and l'archeveque and it was resolved to kill moringay that night Nica, La Salle's devoted follower, and Saget, his faithful servant, must die with him. All of the five were of one mind except the pilot Tessier, who neither aided nor opposed the plot. Night came, the woods grew dark, the evening meal was finished, and the evening pipes were smoked. The order of the guard was arranged, and, doubtless by design, the first hour of the night was assigned to Moringay, the second to Saget, and the third to Nica. Gun in hand, each stood watch in turn over the silent but not sleeping forms around him, till, his time expiring, he called the man who was to relieve him, wrapped himself in his blanket, and was soon buried in a slumber that was to be his last. Now the assassins rose. Duot and Heinz stood with their guns cocked, ready to shoot down any one of the destined victims who should resist or fly. The surgeon, with an axe, stole towards the three sleepers and struck a rapid blow at each in turn. Saget and Nika died with little movement, but Moringay started spasmodically into a sitting posture, gasping and unable to speak and the murderers compelled de marle who was not in their plot to compromise himself by dispatching him the floodgates of murder were open and the torrent must have its way vengeance and safety alike demanded the death of la salle 
Heinz, or English Jem, alone seems to have hesitated, for he was one of those to whom that stern commander had always been partial. Meanwhile, the intended victim was still at his camp, about six miles distant. It is easy to picture with sufficient accuracy the features of the scene, the sheds of bark and branches, beneath which, among blankets and buffalo robes, camp utensils, pack saddles, rude harness, guns, powder horns, and bullet pouches, the men lounged away the hour, sleeping or smoking, or talking among themselves, the blackened kettles that hung from tripods of poles over the fires, the Indians strolling about the place, or lying like dogs in the sun, with eyes half shut, yet all observant, and in the neighboring meadow, the horses grazing under the eye of a watchman. It was the 18th of March. Moringay and his companions had been expected to return the night before, but the whole day passed and they did not appear. La Salle became very anxious. He resolved to go and look for them, but not well knowing the way, he told the Indians who were about the camp that he would give them a hatchet if they would guide him. One of them accepted the offer, and La Salle prepared to set out in the morning, at the same time directing Joutel to be ready to go with him. Joutel says, That evening, while we were talking about what could have happened to the absent men, he seemed to have a presentiment of what was to take place. He asked me if I had heard of any machinations against them, or if I had noticed any bad design on the part of Duot and the rest. I answered that I had heard nothing, except that they sometimes complained of being found fault with so often, and that this was all I knew. Besides which, as they were persuaded that I was in his interest, they would not have told me of any bad design they might have. We were very uneasy all the rest of the evening. In the morning La Salle set out with his Indian guide. He had changed his mind with regard to Joutel, whom he now directed to remain in charge of the camp and to keep a careful watch. He told the friar Anastase Douay to come with him instead of Joutel, whose gun, which was the best in the party, he borrowed for the occasion, as well as his pistol. The three proceeded on their way, La Salle, the friar, and the Indian. All the way, writes the friar, he spoke to me of nothing but matters of piety, grace, and predestination, enlarging on the debt he owed to God, who had saved him from so many perils during more than twenty years of travel in America. Suddenly I saw him overwhelmed with a profound sadness for which he himself could not account he was so much moved that I scarcely knew him. He soon recovered his usual calmness, and they walked on till they approached the camp of Duot, which was on the farther side of a small river. Looking about him with the eye of a woodsman, La Salle saw two eagles circling in the air nearly over him, as if attracted by carcasses of beasts or men. He fired his gun and his pistol as a summons to any of his followers who might be within hearing. The shots reached the ears of the conspirators. Rightly conjecturing by whom they were fired, several of them, led by Duot, crossed the river at a little distance above, where trees or other intervening objects hid them from sight. Duot and the surgeon crouched like Indians in the long, dry, reed-like grass, 
of the last summer's growth, while l'archeveque stood in sight near the bank. La Salle, continuing to advance, soon saw him, and, calling to him, demanded where was Morangay. The man, without lifting his hat, or any show of respect, replied in an agitated and broken voice, but with a tone of studied insolence, that Morangay was strolling about somewhere. La Salle rebuked and menaced him. He rejoined with increased insolence, drawing back, as he spoke, towards the ambuscade, while the incensed commander advanced to chastise him. At that moment a shot was fired from the grass, instantly followed by another, and pierced through the brain, La Salle dropped dead. The friar at his side stood terror-stricken, unable to advance or to fly, when Duart, rising from the ambuscade, called out to him to take courage, for he had nothing to fear. The murderers now came forward, and with wild looks gathered about their victim. "'There thou liest, great Bashaw, there thou liest!' exclaimed the surgeon Leotol, in base exultation over the unconscious corpse. With mockery and insult they stripped it naked, dragged it into the bushes, and left it there, a prey to the buzzards and the wolves. Thus, in the vigor of his manhood, at the age of forty-three, died Robert Cavalier de la Salle, one of the greatest men, writes Tonti, of this age, without question one of the most remarkable explorers whose names live in history. His faithful officer Joutel thus sketches his portrait. His firmness, his courage, his great knowledge of the arts and sciences, which made him equal to every undertaking, and his untiring energy, which enabled him to surmount every obstacle, would have won at last a glorious success for his grand enterprise, had not all his fine qualities been counterbalanced by a haughtiness of manner which often made him insupportable and by a harshness towards those under his command, which drew upon him an implacable hatred, and was at last the cause of his death. The enthusiasm of the disinterested and chivalrous Champlain was not the enthusiasm of La Salle, nor had he any part in the self-devoted zeal of the early Jesuit explorers. He belonged not to the age of the knight-errant and the saint, but to the modern world of practical study and practical action. He was the hero, not of a principle, nor of a faith, but simply of a fixed idea and a determined purpose. As often happens with concentered and energetic natures, his purpose was to him a passion and an inspiration, and he clung to it with a certain fanaticism of devotion. It was the offspring of an ambition vast and comprehensive, yet acting in the interest both of France and of civilization. Serious in all things, incapable of the lighter pleasures, incapable of repose, finding no joy but in the pursuit of great designs, too shy for society and too reserved for popularity, often unsympathetic and always seeming so, smothering emotions which he could not utter, schooled to universal distrust, stern to his followers and pitiless to himself, bearing the brunt of every hardship and every danger, demanding of others an equal constancy joined to an implicit deference, heeding no counsel but his own, attempting the impossible, 
and grasping at what was too vast to hold he contained in his own complex and painful nature the chief springs of his triumphs his failures and his death it is easy to reckon up his defects but it is not easy to hide from sight the roman virtues that redeemed them beset by a throng of enemies he stands like the king of israel head and shoulders above them all he was a tower of adamant against whose impregnable front hardship and danger the rage of man and of the elements the southern sun the northern blast fatigue famine disease delay disappointment and deferred hope emptied their quivers in vain that very pride which coriolanus-like declared itself most sternly in the thickest press of foes has in it something to challenge admiration never under the impenetrable mail of paladin or crusader beat a heart of more intrepid metal than within the stoic panoply that armed the breast of la salle to estimate aright the marvels of his patient fortitude one must follow on his track through the vast scene of his interminable journeyings those thousands of weary miles of forest marsh and river where again and again in the bitterness of baffled striving the untiring pilgrim pushed onward toward the goal which he was never to attain america owes him an enduring memory for in this masculine figure she sees the pioneer who guided her to the possession of her richest heritage End of chapter twenty seven